Good morning. All right, I'm going to take care of one thing before we get into our study of Ephesians. Uh, if you have not received one of these uh, last week, if you're new this week or you missed last week or you just left it last week, in front of you in the seat, uh, underneath in the book rack, there should be one of these called the playbook. Uh, we went through this last week talking about how uh, we're preparing ourselves to be able to serve other people better, and this is one of the ways that we do this. So if you have not gotten one of these, again, grab it, take it home with you. Uh, if you're a guest with us, this is completely free to you. If you want to just look through it, ask questions, you're more than welcome to do so. And so this helps us in our, in our gatherings every single week to be able to reach out to people if you're new, if you're a guest, if you're wanting to get connected with a faith or get connected with a family or group or community of people. These are ways in which we serve. We're greeting people. We're helping people find connections with, with other people or ministries or groups. And so we'd love for you to take one of these. And then last week, if you are not here, there's also a fine purpose card in the seat in front of you. And we asked everyone, whether you've been serving for 20 years or you just started serving last week or you want to start serving in the near future, to take one of these and throughout our gathering this morning, fill it out. If you have any questions, you can mark that on the back as well. It's a way for us to help you get connected in ministry to serve other people. And this is what we said last week. We don't want you to fill a spot or fill a role. You and I, serving other people is actually evidence of our faith and our walk with God, and it's part of our transformation and our growth in Him as well, because we have a saying that we fully wholeheartedly believe in, that you're never more like Christ than when, than when you're serving someone else. And so for you and I to not be serving someone, it means that we're not growing in the image of Christ, who is the one that we are called uh, to model our lives after, and the one who's given us salvation and rescue. And so if you do that for us today as we go through our time, fill out that fine purpose card. If you're a guest with us, and you're like, I just showed up this week, I don't want to sign up for anything, don't, don't worry about it, okay? Nobody's asking you to sign up for anything, just enjoy coming this morning, uh, singing some songs, hearing the message preached, and maybe meeting some new friends today. We don't want you to have to fill anything out, turn anything in. This is really for people who are already engaged with us at LifePoint, or want to get to know a little bit more about how they can be involved with us as well. So we ask you to do that uh, today. And so if you've got your Bible, turn to Ephesians. <clears throat> what I'm going to do at the very beginning... So I'm going to give us a backdrop and an understanding of, of where we are and why uh, the man who is writing this part of Scripture is writing this. And the man who wrote it is a man named Paul. Paul was an adversary of God, an adversary of Jesus specifically, until he met Jesus after he was resurrected. And then God changed everything in Paul's life. And for the rest of his days, he went around teaching and preaching about this person of Jesus. And so he's writing this letter, and, and it's called the crown jewel because it's one of the greatest pieces of Scripture. Now, you can't say one piece is better than another because it's all written by the Holy Spirit, given to us by God as his word. But there's something in these words that Paul has penned and written that kind of is that, that crown jewel. It's the one that you can go to and have comfort in. It's the one you can go to and find growth in. It's the place you can go to and understand what God has done for us. And so it's interesting that it's called the crown jewel because the city to which he wrote it, Ephesus, which is where it gets its name, the Ephesians, the people from Ephesus, Ephesus was much like the letter that Paul wrote. It was kind of the crown jewel of the area around uh, Asia. And so it was this place where Everybody loved to go and people loved to travel to. It was a vibrant port city. So it had a lot of commerce, a lot of trade, a lot of economy going on in that day. And it was just this beautiful city in which people wanted to live and exist or at least travel to or they would go to trade and they would start businesses there. 
And so in this city, they had two structures, two main structures that were kind of the epitome of this being the crown jewel of Asia. The first one was their outdoor amphitheater. And, and there are estimates that it held within 20, uh, 12 to 24,000 of its residents. And they would pile into this outdoor amphitheater like we would see on movies, the Colosseum-type atmosphere where they would have festivals or, or games and they would see people killed. And then the next day they would trade within that and they would raise banners and have celebrations. And so it was sitting in this picturesque view within the city to where it looked out over the port. And so you just imagine one of our modern day stadiums looking out over an ocean or a sea or a river. This is kind of that setting and that scene for these people in Ephesus. And so they would gather around this amphitheater and they would enjoy entertainment. They would do commerce and trade and activity. And just north in the city, just north of the amphitheater, was this structure that was larger than life. It was the Temple of Artemis. And it was this, this beautiful place where people would gather and they would go into to worship and it would serve as a bank, it would serve as a refuge for people who were trying to find a safe hiding place from people who tried to find retribution against them. And so it was, it was these two structures that, that really held the city together. And, and the Temple of Artemis was so big and so large that she was four times the size of the, the Parthenon in Athens. So she was enormous, and people took pride in their temple. So much so that at one point the temple was burned, and they didn't want any help from the government. They didn't ask Alexander the Great for anything. He offered to help rebuild their temple, and they said, no, we got this. We're going to take care of it. So the people themselves, with their own money and their own time, uh, rebuilt this temple, and this city was just filled with promise. It was filled with possibility. It was one of the great cities of the world. The temple was known as one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. This is how great and grand and beautiful that this city was. So she was filled with so much possibility. But because of her affluence and because of her pride in herself and what they could accomplish on their own, she was also a breeding ground for idolatry. Anything and everything you could find to put your faith and your trust and your hope in existed in Ephesus. And Paul uncovered that one day, not in the book of Ephesians, but in another letter called Acts. He uncovers this sense of idolatry among the people, specifically this collective idolatry toward the goddess Artemis. And this is what it says as it records this interaction in Acts chapter 19, which Paul had with the people. And about that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. So this is a big deal. This is a citywide deal, and it was against the way. And, and the, the way of Jesus Christ, the people who were following Christ, was known as the way because Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. So there is this interaction, this disturbance, this tension that happens between Christians in the area of Ephesus and with the rest of the city. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, <coughs> excuse me, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. So he gathers all of these other men who are making shrines and idols that people could buy to take with them into the temple or souvenirs to take with them away. And so these he gathered together. He got all of these men, the workmen in similar trades. And he said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. This is how we make our living. And so you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul, this guy, who hasn't just been in Ephesus, been in all of our area and all of our region. He is causing a disturbance and he has persuaded and turned many a great people away from Artemis, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. 
And so Demetrius goes on making his case and he says, there's this danger. There's this danger that not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, that we may not have a livelihood anymore if everybody starts following the way and they quit following Artemis, then we have no business, but not only will we lose our business. Go back to that verse, I'm sorry. Not only will we lose our business, then also this, this sense of idolatry and religion and worship of Artemis will disappear and go away as well. So Paul has persuaded people to turn away, many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Go on to the next one. And there's this danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all of Asia and the world worship. And so it's in this setting and in this scene that Paul is writing to these people. You have Paul who has come into town who is preaching that Jesus is the only way. He's the only one that we worship. He's the only one that we give our lives to. And then you have the rest of the city of Ephesus. And as Demetrius says, all of Asia who wants nothing to do with Jesus but wants to worship their own goddess, Artemis, who is the goddess of fertility. Who wouldn't want to worship a goddess like that, right? And so they have this goddess and they have all this trade happening around the amphitheater, all this trade happening around the temple. And they're collectively worshiping this God that they are trying to serve to get her to give them something in return. And so Paul is teaching people there there is no God if you have to make him with your own hands. Which men have tried to do since the beginning of time. From the golden calf to the idols outside the temple of Artemis to 401ks to houses to structures to businesses to relationships And Paul says, there there is no God if you have to make him with your own hands, then he is not worthy of being called God. And so Paul addresses the people here in Ephesus. And and these people, (coughs) as he starts to teach and, and tell them about Jesus, this disruption erupts so large that the entire city becomes involved in this tension, in this argument. And they drag two of Paul's companions into the amphitheater into this large amphitheater that holds twelve to 24,000 people. All the city rush into, and they drag them in, and Paul tries to go in, but the rest of his people are pulling him out, saying, Paul, if you go in there, you're going to die. Paul, if you go in there and try to argue against them, it's the end of you, and you'll have no more ministry. And they pull Paul away, and he rescues away. But inside the amphitheater, two of Paul's companions are taking, taken into this place, and the city is just pelting them with words. And they're just crying over and over and over for two solid hours. For two hours, they say, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians over and over and over again. Because these men and women were worried that if their God that they served disappeared, their livelihood would disappear with it as well. And everything they'd ever believed, everything they'd ever known, everything they'd ever put their hands to would be gone. So I give you that backdrop and that history to know and understand exactly where Paul is and why he is writing this letter to this group of people. So in verse 1 and 2, this is what he says. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, this is what he writes, grace to you, this is just a general opening, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul sets out saying, I'm an apostle, which means, means I am sent by Jesus. I didn't come on my own. I'm not like the silversmiths who are trying to make money off of this. 
I'm not like the other teachers going around trying to get people to pay them for speaking or speaking eloquently or teaching them certain things. Paul says, I'm not in this for me. I'm sent by God. It is his will. It's not my plan. It's not my decision that he called me and he sent me out and he sent me specifically to you. And Paul's not writing this letter from a distance like we get to, you know, on social media. You just throw truth bombs out there and you don't have a relationship. Paul spent three years with these people. Before he writes this letter, he spent three years in this city. So he knows the atmosphere. He knows the environment. He knows the businesses. He knows the people. He knows the trade. He knows everything that has happened in this place. And so Paul is writing to them as one who knows them, who loves them. And he says, I'm writing this to the saints. These are the people who believe and who trust. I'm writing this to encourage you. And he tells them, you have been faithful. I'm I'm glad you've been faithful. But one of the things we understand and know about the people of Ephesus the Ephesians church, the Ephesus church is they were not completely faithful all the way till the end of their days and the end of their time. They struggled at some point with walking with God and trusting in him. And we see that in Revelation as John, one of the, the followers of Jesus, writes this in Revelation chapter 2, verses 2 through 5. He says this about them. He says, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil... But have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. He continues and says, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. So John, like Paul, says you have been faithful. You have followed very well except. But I have this against you. There's this one thing that you struggle with. There's this one thing you don't do well that you've not been faithful in. And it is this, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. And so he finishes in verse 5. He says, remember this. Therefore, from where you have fallen and repent. Remember what you used to believe, what you used to have, how you used to live. Remember that thing that you knew at the beginning of Christ that Paul gave to you. And you turned your life over to him, how he transformed and changed every piece and part about you. He says, remember that and repent, which means to turn away from what you're doing now and walk back toward Jesus and fall back on him. Repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand, your influence, your place from its place unless you repent. And so Paul, like John, is going to write to these people two main things he's going to carry throughout this letter. One is that Christ reconciles, restores all things to himself. And the second thing he's going to talk about is unity within the church. And those two are consistent themes all the way through this letter and all the way through the New Testament. And so John comes along after Paul and says, you believe rightly. You have this good theology. You understand the word of God so much so that they could point out false teachers. A teacher who would come into town and who would teach incorrectly or things other than or contrary to what Jesus would teach. These people understood and knew it and would call them out and send them on their way. So Paul and John says, you got it. You have the head knowledge. You have understanding. You can quote Bible verses. You've been to Awana. You got perfect attendance in Sunday school. You know Jesus is the answer to every question ever asked, right? You got it. But what you're missing The one thing that I hold against you is that you've lost your love you had at first. And commentators believe that they lost their love for Christ and they lost their love for one another. That somewhere along the way, they made it about good works 
Somewhere along the way, they made it about believing the right things and felt superior or felt safe in what they knew and what they'd been taught and what they believed and what they could write down on a piece of paper or communicate to someone else what was right theology, doctrine, and belief. But they missed out on the purpose for knowing and understanding the Scripture and the Word of God, which is to lead to transformation that would cause us to love God more and in turn, love other people the way he loved us. And, and there's one statement I, I want to give you that, that's this. It's right theology should always lead to right practice. Right believing, right understanding, knowing the word of God as it is, as it's written, as God intended for it to be. To have a right understanding of that always, not sometimes, not every now and then, always leads to right practice. Which means if we know the word of God, we should be living out the word of God in our daily lives. We should be loving people the way God tells us to love us, the way he modeled for us in Christ, the way he sent Jesus on our behalf. We should be loving people, serving people, caring for people. We should be living holy and blameless lives. Understanding the word of God is not enough. And I know that's so weird to hear from a pastor. Knowing the word of God is not enough if it was John wouldn't have said I have this against you you know it great job and that's it but he says I have this against you you know it you're just not living it you've been in church all your life and nobody can tell you know God you know the words on pages in a book but it's done nothing to change and transform your life and so Paul, over the course of the letter of Ephesians, is going to address in the first basically half of the book, half of the letter, right theology, right understanding, right belief, specifically what God has done for us in Christ. And then the second half of his letter, he is going to encourage us to put that understanding in practice. He's going to drive us and propel us and push us. This is how you live with employees. This is how you live with your children. Children, this is how you live with your parents. This is how you live with your spouse. This is how you live out this new life that God has given you in Christ. Because Paul understood, John understood, and Jesus spoke to this fact that right theology without right practice is not true understanding of who God is, the gospel, and his word. And so we're going to go through this book together, we're going to go through this letter together, understanding what right belief is, and then how to live that out. And so in verse 3 and 4, Paul continues in this section. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. <clears throat> so I'm going to address this section in, in two parts. First, I want to talk about this idea of heavenly blessings, these, every spiritual blessing, everything you could ever need, everything you need for righteousness, godliness, and life has been given to us from the heavenly places given by God in Christ. And so when Paul states this, he is echoing another man who followed Jesus as well. His name was James. He was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He says the exact same thing Paul says, that every good and perfect gift we get, the spiritual gifts that we get come from heaven. He says this in James 1.17. Every good and perfect gift is from above. 
And so he tells us that these blessings come from God. And the reason this is important, and we could pass by this, and this is why I have to give us the basic understanding and the historical environment to which Paul is writing this letter. Because this is important for Paul to state this. We would read it and go, okay, we got that, we understand it. But he's writing not first to us, he's writing first to the Christians who live in Ephesus, who are possibly being swayed in their faith because of the culture around them. So at that temple, where where it was the temple to Artemis, inside of that temple there was this huge statue of the goddess. That every time you'd walk into the temple, you would pass by this black statue that was, was on display for everyone to see. As if to say, when you walk into this place, you are choosing to worship this goddess, who is the goddess of fertility, the goddess of all the world, and the goddess of all Asia. Now, the, the way they came about this statue, historians believe, is that in their day and time, a, a meteorite fell from the sky. And it was from that meteorite that they carved out this statue to Artemis, which when they walk into this temple, they are worshiping Artemis because it was a gift from the heavenly places, a meteorite falling from the heavenly places to earth to them as a gift to say, this is the goddess you should worship. And so Paul is contrasting these two ideas. That the people of the day, the people of Ephesus believe, sure, I'll, I'll, I'll believe that. I'm a spiritual person. I believe that every good and perfect gift comes from the heavenly places because we receive this meteorite which we carved into an image of Artemis that we worship every single day. And Paul says the same thing. Every good and perfect gift, every spiritual blessing you have received comes from the heavenly places. But Paul says it wasn't a meteorite. It was a person And his name was Jesus, and he wasn't just this inanimate object. He was the Son of God who came on behalf of all mankind. And you don't have to do anything. You don't have to go into the temple. You don't have to buy idols of him. You don't have to throw money as you walk into this place. You don't have to work for him. God chose from the beginning of time to send him because of his grace to love you. You don't have to do anything to work for it. And everybody else in the city is working to receive the blessing and the grace and the love of the goddess Artemis. And they're working their fingers to the bone and they're working their tails off so that they could receive blessing from her because they have to work because every other religion means that man has to work our way to God. And Paul says the only one that's different is really not a religion because man's the one that makes religion. It's a relationship in which God from the beginning of time chose to send his son from the heavenly places, from his throne, from his king, that he would come and he would walk the earth. And you don't have to do anything to earn his affection or his love. He came simply because God decided to pour out this love on us. And then Paul finishes this section by saying that every believer, everyone who believes in Jesus receives that gift free because of the grace of God. We have faith in him, but we're called to two things. We're called to be holy, and we're called to be blameless. Now, the beautiful part of that is we don't have to do either one of those by ourselves either. Paul says that in Christ, you are already blameless, which he'll touch on in just a moment. And the other goal for every believer is that we would become holy, righteous, perfect, pure, which is what all of the rest of the Ephesian people were trying to do. They were just trying to earn their way to it. And Paul will show us we don't have to do it. God has given us a gift in his Holy Spirit that helps us in that area of our walk as well. And then he continues in verse 5 and 6. 
In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. The beloved is the, the group of people who follow and walk after him. Now, you've got to think about the people living in Ephesus. They're trying to please this God, Artemis. And she doesn't care anything about a relationship with them. She just wants them to serve her. She really doesn't even exist. But in their mind, she just wants them to serve her. Bring me. Give me everything you have. Lay it at my feet. I need you to serve me. And the opposite, Paul says, is true of God. He's like, I don't need you to serve me. I'm content in and of myself. I don't need your love. I don't need your, your gifts. I don't, I don't need your efforts. I don't, I don't need all of that. What I want is I want a relationship with you. And Paul says he's going to go so far as to bring us into his family. This God who is above us, who is separate from us, who doesn't need any of our efforts and is actually, is actually just kind of sickened by our rebellion because of our sin, decides I have chosen to love you despite this and I not only want to forgive you, I want a relationship with you. So much so that I have planned from the beginning of time to adopt you into my family, to bring you into my household. Now, if you've been around this church, you know that we're a church that have a lot of adoptive and foster parents in the room this morning. And that's the working of God. That's not the working of anybody in this place except God himself. But they understand this verse better than those of us who've never walked through it before. And you may say, well, I got kids, I got kids, you know, I got biological kids. You can't tell me that's different. Let me tell you why it's different. Because an adoptive foster parent has sacrificed so much to love someone that was originally not their own. They have walked through literal hell, and I don't mean that ugly. They have walked through the pits of hell. They have given up sleep and time, comfort, money. They have sacrificed on their knees and they have been treated as if they are a glorified babysitter, slapped in the face, discounted, and yet every single day show up to say, I'm for that kid. I'm for that child and I'm doing everything I can so that that kid is not orphaned, so that kid has a place to call home and a person to call dad. Where Artemis says, serve me. God says, I'll do everything to serve you. I have chosen in my love to sacrifice myself, to show up every day to say, that one, that one's mine. And I'm going to give everything I can. Even if people discount me, question me, talk about me, I'm going to give up everything I can so that they can have a family and a home. Because that's my kid. Even if nobody believes it, that one's mine. And so he continues in verse 7 through 10. He talks about this, this blameless state that God has given us. In him we have redemption. Now remember that word. We're going to come back to it. In him we have redemption through his blood, speaking of Christ, the forgiveness of our trespasses, which is our, our sins, our wrongdoing, our mistakes, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. He chose to do this for us, making known to us the mystery of his will, because God's Deciding to send Jesus really makes no sense to anyone how he's going to rescue and save people. So he makes it known to us in Christ according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ. As a plan, this wasn't second chance, this wasn't, oh, this happened, I'm not sure how to control the world or control this environment. This caught me off guard, but this was the plan of God for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. 
And so Paul says that when God has done this in Christ, he gives us this deeper understanding of what God has done for us in Jesus. He says that not only have you been brought into a family, but when you're brought into this family, you are blameless. How many of us this morning feel blameless? Not a one of us. Because we know what we've done. We know how we spoke to our spouse. We know how we treated our employees last week. We know the things that are in our heart. We know the things that we've seen, the things that we've said. And so the people of Ephesus, because this understanding of their wrongdoing, every day would travel to the temple of Artemis and lay down alms or give money or sacrifice certain things so that they could be forgiven. But every day they had to go back and do it again. Paul says, in Christ, you're completely blameless, forgiven of everything you have ever done. There's no guilt, there's no shame, there's no sorrow. All of it is wiped away. When God sees you, once you have trusted and believed in Jesus Christ, you are blameless, whole, pure, and righteous. That holiness that we've been searching for, we don't do it on our own. God gives it to us in the form of Christ because he stands in our place that when God sees us, he sees Jesus and we are completely blameless. And you say, well, how did he do that? How did that happen? Let me tell you first, before how it happened, let me tell you why it needed to happen. If you go back and look in verse 7, it says that in him we have redemption. You know what the word redemption means? The word redemption implies that we have been held in slavery and in bondage to something or to someone. That you and I as people have been enslaved and we need someone to rescue us and to free us from our captivity and from our slavery. We've been kidnapped and held hostage. Problem is, when you're in slavery and you're held hostage... You can't buy your own freedom. You don't have the ability to get yourself out of that situation. So someone from the outside has to come in and pay the ransom for you. They have to redeem you. And someone has to do that that has the ability to pay for our freedom. Someone has to possess the riches enough to pay the ransom that we have gotten ourselves in. And for us, the sin that we exist in, the trespasses we've made against God, is so costly that we could never even think about paying it ourselves. And Paul says that we've been redeemed in Christ. And the reason that we can be blameless is because our bondage in sin has been broken. And payment has been made so that the exchange can happen. We lose our chains and we receive freedom instead. Now, someone has to have enough money to do this. Or someone has to have enough of something of value to pay for our lives. And Paul says the one who has value is Christ. And he has enough to pay for the sin of the world. That his life is worth more than our sin because he is perfect, holy, blameless, and righteous. And we think, okay, God did this for us and he did it kind of unwillingly and begrudgingly because he made us and we walked away, we rebelled. We know how we treat our kids when they do that. We kind of make them feel shameful. Like, yeah, well, I'll forgive you, but this is what you did. Don't forget because I'm never going to forget. Paul says, no, no, you're blameless. And God didn't do this unwillingly or begrudgingly. He used this word on, perfect, or on purpose. It's called lavished. 
which means he poured out overflowing, poured on you. You know when you walk into a party and you just have these friends or this group of people and they're just showering you with gifts to the point where you feel, I'm not worthy of this. It's exactly what God has done for us in Christ. That he has lavished these riches of Jesus on us and poured out on us so that the payment for our sin could be made and could be paid. And it happened through the perfect person of Jesus Christ. So then he continues in verse 11 and 12. He says, in him, in Jesus, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things together according to the counsel of his will. Remember, this was his plan from the beginning, not ours. So that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And so Paul goes a little bit further into the depths of this redemption. We think, okay, God has done this for us. He's given us freedom. He's given us a family. Now he's calling us sons and daughters. And as sons and daughters, we have the right of every single child. And you know for your children, they have everything you could ever give them. They don't have to ask. You say, yes, it's yours because you're mine. But unfortunately, this is the approach we take. Just like the people of Ephesus who followed the goddess Artemis, every day we come back to try to pay God back for our redemption. Every day we come and we lay alms at his feet. We lay our works, we lay our efforts and say, God, look, is this enough for you to be okay? Is this enough to pay you back? We think we owe God something for what he did for us in Christ. Which logically would mean we had the ability to get ourselves out of sin if we had enough to pay him back, which we never had and never will. And so not only does God give us this status of freedom, but he's given us this status of child. And with the status of child means you get his inheritance. How many of you ever worked for your own inheritance? None of us. How do you receive an inheritance? It's given to you. And how did that person get it? They worked enough to earn it. And so God is worthy and valuable and perfect enough to have all of these riches in all the world because he is God. And because we are now his children because of what Christ has done for us, he lavishly pours out this inheritance and says, everything I have is yours. You don't have to pay me back. All I want you to do is to love me and love my people and walk faithfully in me. And until I come back to get you, I'm going to give you something of myself that will help you in this life, help you in this journey, and there's a reminder that you're mine and nobody can take that away from you. He finishes in verse 13 and 14 in this section we're going to look at today. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So when you heard of Christ and you believed and trusted in him and you believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit that has been stamped on your life. It's been sealed on you just like you would sear an animal to brand them to say, that's mine. God has put in us his will and Christ and his Holy Spirit in us because he is the guarantee of our inheritance. Nobody can take it away. Nobody can rip you away from God's hands because he has placed his Holy Spirit as this branding on you. He's given you a new heart, a new life, a new family, a new home, a new name. He's given you freedom and inheritance. And the Holy Spirit is there as our deposit until we acquire full possession of it to the praise of his glory. So Paul said there's two things, that we should be holy and we should be blameless. And we have been made blameless because of Christ's work on the cross for us. 
And we are being made holy because of the Holy Spirit that God has placed inside of us that is drawing us to himself, that is revealing the word of God to us in a way that causes our lives to be transformed because we desire to be more like Christ because of the love he's given us and who our God is that shapes and changes how we live our daily lives because of the love and the sacrifice and the redemption we have in him. And so today, if you trust and believe in God, you have a family. You have a family you didn't have before. You have freedom and forgiveness. You don't have to do anything for it. God did everything in Christ. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the heavenly places, the Father of spiritual blessings. You have this sense of no guilt, no shame, because Jesus says, I have paid your debt. And you don't owe anything. The only thing that God wants from you is to love him and to walk with him every day of your life. And oh, by the way, you don't have to do that by yourself. I've given you my Holy Spirit who will reveal my word to you to help you live holy and blameless for the rest of your days. You don't have to worry. Any mistake you make from here on out does not disqualify you from being a part of my family. It's just a reminder of the fact that you need Jesus every single day. Maybe you're here this morning. And you say, I've been just like the people of Ephesus. Every day, I wake up trying to put my hands to work to please this God that I'm not sure exists. Every day, I try to be nice to people. I try to show up or I try to attend or I try to give money. Or maybe you've grown up in church all of your life. You know all the verses you're supposed to know. You know all the answers. But you've never really fully trusted in who Jesus is. Maybe you're not trusting in him today. And maybe you say, for the first time, I understand. I can't do it. God has done it for me. All I have to do is accept it and believe that Jesus is my salvation. Everything I do on my own will never earn me what I need. So maybe today you just need to trust in him. We invite you to do that, just to talk to God and say, God, I I don't know everything. I don't understand everything. But I have heard and I finally understand that you love me enough to send your son to pay my debt. I feel like I owe you something. But what I want to give you is my life in return. Maybe you just want to talk to somebody today. At the end, as we sing, I'll be up front. Or if you want to grab somebody and walk out back, we would love to talk to you. This is the most important thing you could ever know or understand. Not just today, but for the rest of your life. So let me pray for us, and we'll continue to sing and let God work in us. Father, we thank you for the love and the perfect life of Jesus. We thank you for the plan that you had from the beginning of time to show us love by sending him to die in our place. And God, when we feel like there's nothing we could do to earn your love or your favor, we, we see this morning that that's a reality and that's true. But you chose to love us anyway. You chose to bring us into your family. You chose to forgive our debt because of your grace that is so amazing. That not only did you just show pity on us. You went beyond that. You showed us unconditional love when we could never give you anything in return. You chose to love us anyway. And so, Father, we pray for the men and women this morning that maybe for the first time understand what it is to trust in Christ. Maybe for the first time see the beauty of your plan 
That we don't just come to church just because it's what we're supposed to do. But that it is continuing our relationship with you as we gather together with other people who are on this very same journey. Father, we pray that you'd open hearts and minds this morning, give them, give us courage to trust you, maybe for the very first time for some. We ask it in the grace and the love and the name of Jesus. Amen.